This morning, I um, must confess, I really don't want to preach this message. Uh, it is a message that strikes me personally, and I think strikes us collectively. It's a message of one that should remind us of who it is we serve and who it is that we call God. And so this morning, we're going to work through prayer. I had planned to go through the whole Lord's uh, Prayer. Um, but as you can imagine, there's so much to go through there that I had to break it up. And so this morning, we're going to go through the first part of it. But I think it's important to work through as we live in a time where prayer is declining. Um, if you think about the American church, prayer is often used as a transitional period, right? It's transition between songs, transition between speakers, transitions for whatever event is coming next within the congregation. Uh, it is not maybe a focal point of the service, but merely a required add-on, if you want to use that language, for the church. And so, as I think through collectively what prayer looks like in America, as I think through collectively what it looks like in my life, um, it's a hard sermon to preach this morning. And it's a problem, I think, that we will spend all of eternity in a non-sinful way thinking about. The fact that we spent so much time not praying to the God who is creator of all things and is in all things. There's a famous theologian, his name is Bill Koresh. He died of cancer several years ago. But before he died, he spoke at a collegiate event. And uh, he was a devout Muslim. And uh, he converted to Christianity. And his dad happened to know Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And for my younger generations, that was a famous basketball player, um, one of the best to play, and a devout Muslim. And he got to meet with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and Kareem tried to convince him to come back to Islam. And they spent several hours talking, and he didn't come back. He stayed true to the faith. And he later, this is when he was in his early 20s, he later went, met with a friend, and his friend said, so did you get an autograph? He goes, you know, I, I didn't even think about it. He's like, you were with Kareem for hours and you did not get an autograph. This is crazy. And Kareem went on to point out that he got something far better than an autograph. He got a one-on-one -on -one intimate conversation with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar that was worth more than any autograph he could have ever gotten. And I think of that as a good analogy of so often how we treat God. We have the ability to come to God in intimate prayer and we often are just happy to settle for something less, a blessing over our mill, a blessing as we walk out the church doors this morning of something smaller because we can be satisfied with so little. So will you pray with me this morning before we actually look at the text. Father, we thank you that you are the owner of the thousand cattle on the hill, that you are without need and yet, you still draw us near to you. You call us brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray that this message would not be my words, that it would not be the thoughts of a man, but it would be the Spirit speaking through His Word this morning that would convict and transform our lives and how we approach you in your kingdom through prayer. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So to begin, I want us to think about the context of the Lord's Prayer. The, the, one of the reasons I didn't want to preach this is because 
it's such a weighty passage, and I, I honestly feel I'm too young in that sense that as I get older, this passage becomes better for me and more appropriate to preach. Because I would say that the older you are in faith, the more prayer life you've had, the more these words mean to you. And so as I go through this, I, I constantly think about the fact that we are so desensitized to God's word to us on prayer. We, we all know the Lord's Prayer. In fact, we recite it minimum at least once a month here at Redeemer, right? And so it's a prayer that we are not unfamiliar with, but we're quite possibly too familiar with. And so I want to look at the prayer itself, and then I want to walk through some of the section before it and after it. But if you'll first turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, we're going to read verses 1 through 13, and then we'll primarily focus on the first couple sections within those verses. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before the people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you that you have received, they have received their reward. But when you need to give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you that they have received the reward, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray like this then. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Roughly, the Lord's Prayer there took me about 20 seconds to say. It's, it's a very short prayer. 20 seconds, not very long. I read more than that, certainly. But 20 seconds is on average to say the Lord's Prayer. Um, it's a small prayer that we often skip over, right? We, one of the reasons we at Redeemer have felt convicted to say it is because we want to signify its importance to the church. That it is not merely simply a teaching among many. It's not merely one facet of a proverb, but it is a key foundation for the Christian life going forward in Christ. And so many times we do not think about prayer as a key foundation because as Colin said when we are praying for the nations, it's just not as convenient for us to be praying. Gary Miller, who wrote a book on prayer, suggests that life is easy for most evangelicals, perhaps too easy. Some of us lack the desperation that most Christians have experienced throughout church history. Desperation leads to prayer. We are also incredibly distracted and busy. States of mind that are enemies of prayer. But giving up on prayer is not only a sign of evangelical weakness, it is also disobedience. It's a simple prayer with profound impact on our Christian obedience and our Christian walk. And so it's a 
key point that we need to be focused on within our church. It's a key point that we need to be focused on in our families and in our individual lives. How we pray and how often we do pray. And so certainly as we move forward this series, we're going to talk about some of the applications of that. But today the focus is on the context of where Jesus is speaking this prayer for us. Now we read a little bit forward. And this is Jesus giving us the Lord's Prayer. Now Jesus, fully man or fully God? Both, hopefully you say it right. Don't pick. Okay? Um, both, fully man and fully God. So Jesus, as a fully human man, had perfect prayer life. And so through a perfect human, we're able to see what that looks like. A man constantly praying. A man who is willing to step away from important ministry to go pray. Remember, he had to heal the sick. He needed to give sight to the blind. There was demons to cast out. There were souls to rescue. And he took time to go away and pray. He took time to step back and say, prayer is what is needed here. And while certainly fully man, he's also fully divine. So the divine essence of Christ, fully God of the triune nature, shows and speaks to us the need for prayer. That God is in fellowship with himself and we are to be in fellowship with God through prayer. His life demonstrates this. It was not easy. You think about Jesus' life, those times where he went to pray came pretty inconvenient sometimes. There were things that needed to be done. And so we see this desperation on Jesus' life to be in prayer. A man who is devoted to prayer to his heavenly father as he does his will. There's a famous tweet from John Piper all the way back of October 2009. He says, one of the greatest uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove that the last, at the last day that prayerlessness was not from a lack of time. That has only gotten worse as it's aged almost 10 years later. Um, we have more things to distract us to keep us busy um, in our life. And so this morning as we work through that, I want to be a, be a reminder of the conviction of that we should be praying more, but to not cast all hope aside and be hopeless. Um, God works with us, thankfully, where we're at in our broken state. So, looking at the text we read first, we see Jesus talking primarily in the first couple verses, one through four, about giving. But there's a theme that carries over from verses 1 through 4 through 5 through 8. It's this notion of reward. It's this notion of hypocrisy. And so we see that this is taking place in line with God talking about how we should approach him. And so this is a series that's within the Sermon on the Mount. The greatest sermon ever given, as I've seen it called before. Jesus is speaking about multiple things, loving your enemy, fasting. He's praying about this whole Christian experience. And within this is the Lord's Prayer. But notice that it takes place when he's condemning the Pharisees for their prayer habits. Right? The disciples in uh, Mark, the, the text says they say, Lord, teach us how to pray. Um, I don't know much about Jewish customs, but I know one thing. They have a deep and complex system of prayer. Right? They have a particular style, they have particular prayers, for, and they have a deep, quote-unquote, tradition of prayer. 
So you're asking Jews, these are Jews asking Jesus to teach them how to pray. Um, the Old Testament isn't shy on how they should pray. These aren't guys who, they're novice guys in terms of like, I don't know what, what the Old Testament says about prayer. I don't know what we're supposed to do. These guys knew what prayer was, and yet here they are asking Jesus, and Jesus telling them. And so as we look at this section, there's a couple of negatives that we can take away from the Lord's Prayer um, in regards to what prayer is and what prayer isn't. And so in that, we see that there is several things we want to point out and look at. So first off, we see that it is not isolated event from what we believe. Notice the section of, when I say isolated, what I mean is that it is, a, it is not separate from our theology. It's not a separate thing we do outside of theology. How we pray and when we pray and what we pray for shows what we truly believe theologically. It's one thing to espouse what you believe theologically. It's one thing to be able to articulate that in conversation, what you believe. But when you pray, you're showing truly what you believe about the God of the universe, about your relationship to him, about what your petition to him looks like in this world. And so that is something I want to think about, right? God has defined the act of worship far more precisely than he's defined by any theology we may espouse. Lexia Randi, Lexi Credenda. As we pray, so we believe. And so think about that in the sense of as we go forward into this. How you pray is what you believe. So I can't watch your prayer life, right? I'm not able to observe you. But think about for a moment, what does your prayers look like? What do you pray about? When do you pray? Why are you praying? At the heart of that, you might find what you truly believe about God in relation to what you may say. Your prayer life is not isolated from the rest of your theology. It shows what we believe. And so looking at the Lord's Prayer, before we get there, we want to talk about some of those, like I said, those, what prayer is not. Um, in John 4, we have the woman at the well. What does Jesus tell her she is to do in worship? She is to worship in what? Spirit and truth. There is a truth and there is a right way, there's a wrong way in which we are to actually worship God. We cannot approach God any way we see fit through prayer. Um, we tend to simply think that sometimes. I think a lot of churches, we try to do what we feel is most relevant or most convenient. Or in our own lives, we try to do, how does this fit into with the way I'm living my life? How can I work prayer into my schedule? How can I make sure that it's complementing what I'm doing? And so we are constantly told by the Bible, but particularly in this sense by Jesus himself saying to worship in spirit and truth. God cannot be approached in any way that we see fit. We must think through this message this morning, this text, as how is God showing us how he is to be approached. Number two, right? So one was we can't approach him in any way we see fit. Two, prayer is not an act of therapy. Um, this one is kind of interesting to me because we've all felt moments where prayer has relieved things, right? So it's not taking away from that. But I want you to, to listen to the words of Alec Moeller on why it's not therapy. We should not seek some sort of curative kickback when we pray. Some scholars of psychology of religion suggest that people pray because prayer produces serenity and alleviates anxiety and fear. 
prayer certainly often does accomplish these things, but prayer also sometimes disrupts our tranquility. God uses prayer to radically reorient our hearts, which can be disturbing. Prayer can sometimes be anti-therapy. This is because prayer is not first and foremost about us, but about the glory of God. And so I think so often we pray in desperation to be, to be there, right? We want to be relaxed. We want to be tranquil. We want to be, okay, everything's okay, right? We want to be soothed from the problems we're facing at that current moment, that current crisis, whatever it is we're going through, instead of actually seeking God's glory be done in what I'm praying for. God's will be fulfilled in this moment, regardless of how wonderful or heartbreaking it is. Three, it's not an act of manipulation or persuasion. Um, when I did college ministry, I'd get kids from all different backgrounds, and I can remember having a crisis conversation with a kid because he was in true crisis because he'd been praying. He'd been trying to persuade God to let him date this girl, and it was not happening, and he was having a crisis of faith, right? Um, he was in an, ick, an act of trying to manipulate God. If I will do this, right, God, you should do this. Right? There's lots of books we can go buy on the market. The Secret of Prayer. How to Unlock Heaven. There's lots of little books out there that can teach us how to, quote unquote, persuade God, manipulate God into doing what we need Him to do so that our lives will be what we see or what we need fulfilled. Again, going back to that notion of God's will be done, not ours. And so often in my own prayer life, even if it's not apparently evident, it's a form of manipulation, right? I'm looking for God to change an outcome in my life that I don't like, that I'm not happy with. I need him to fix this for me, not for him, but for me. And then lastly, it's not a news report to the creator. Um, one of the things I love about family time is it's a news report to everybody else, right? I don't know what's happening to you this week. I don't know what's going on in your lives, the praises, the concerns that have arisen over the week. And so for me as a human, it is a news report. I'm getting something new to pray about. I'm getting something that I need to be conscious of. But it's not news for God. God's not shocked every time we have family time on Sunday morning. Oh, I got to take note of that. Didn't know that was happening. Um, but I think we still tend to think that way, right? Sometimes we like to remind God, hey, um, I don't know if you've been paying attention, but this is happening currently in my life. I need you to handle it. And so as we come through those knots, it's important to remember those things because we are tempted as broken human beings to make prayer a tool, a chip that we can play when we need changes in our life. And so that's something that we definitely do not want to do. It's something that the Bible is going to show and illuminate that does not actually serve us in the end, but actually serves sin. And so we have here the Lord's Prayer. And so we want to notice that it's a system that's a whole, uh, whole routine for the Christian life. And so it's a direct command given from the divine human mediator to his disciples. Side note, I've once connected to Bluetooth. So I've been there. Um, but uh, the divine human mediator to his disciples. So look at me, look at me with uh, verse 9. When you pray like this, okay? Jesus isn't saying, if you have time, pray like this. 
If you want to pray, pray like this. What did you say, nine? Pray then like this. When you pray, pray like this. There's this beautiful thing that I think is happening here for us as broken humans. This is a direct prayer given to us. Now, I could pray the high priestly prayer of Jesus before he goes to Calvary. Um, but can I actually mean what Jesus is saying in that prayer? Not like him, right? Because I'm not about to die for the sins of my people. That's only a prayer Jesus is able to pray in that sense of the truest form. But this prayer, I can pray every day over and over. Why? Because it's directly given to me, to us, as followers of Christ. Pray like this. Pray like this. And so, it's a reminder that we have to not think about uh, what God has done, but think about what he's commanding us to do. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, is the first part of the prayer we're going to look at this morning. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The Lord's Prayer, when it starts off and it finishes, is it kind of impressive? Like, think about the, the high priestly prayer compared to this one. Which one's more theologically impressive? High priestly prayer is really per, per, uh, impressive, right? There's a lot going on. He's talking about future disciples. He's talking about the current disciples. He's talking about the struggle to fulfill God's will, but doesn't want to pay, you know, the price on the cross. He's sweating blood. There's a lot going on there. It is a deeply theological place. And this place isn't as impressive. And I think partly that's because we are so consumed with impressing one another. Um, I know for a fact there has been times I've come up here and I've walked off after praying for our confession of sins, assurance of pardons. I thought, that was a good prayer. That was a good one. And I'm sure there's times I've walked off and I, I'm sure you're thinking, did he say what I think he said? What, what, what was that? He, I don't even know what he said there. Um, but we like that, right? If I were to come up and give a simple prayer every Sunday, there's a part of us that feel that it's lacking in some sense, right? Like, that's not real prayer. It needs to be somewhat impressive, right? If you're going to pray for the congregation, there's a minimum threshold we expect it to be. And we see within the Lord's Prayer that there's a threshold, but it's, it's much lower than we would want it to be, right? We would want God to give us a really important, impressive prayer to pray. And it starts off, pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Okay? It's a, it's a small place in our minds, I think, to start. But we want to notice something there. There's a lot going on in this that we tend to overlook. So again, I said a little bit earlier when I was quoting uh, from Moeller, but when God says, Jesus says, pray like this, it's not merely a suggestion, it's a command. And to not do so is not a sign of laziness, it's not a sign of busyness, it's also a sign of disobedience. Prayer is central to the Christian faith. You cannot be a follower and not pray. It's not possible. Prayer is central to the Christian faith. You cannot be a follower and not pray. In Mark chapter 9, verse 29, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, hey, there was this demon. We couldn't get rid of it. 
What is Jesus' response back to them? These type of demons are only cast out by prayer. Again, prayer is so central. There's only certain supernatural events that can take place through prayer. And yet we don't find the time. We find other things to do than pray. And so you think about the whole of Scripture. You think about our experiences as individuals. And it should put you in an uncomfortable place. Scripture over and over commands to pray, to pray. And so often I'm busy with my life, my wife, my kids, my job. I've got lots of things to do. I've got places to be. But notice that verse 9 says, pray like this. But back up just a moment to verse 7. And it kind of ties into what we're talking about when I do the prayers. Verse 7, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. I like that phrase in the ESV. Empty phrases. Big, heavy theological words that are impressive. Right? The NIV, the NIV says babble, right? To just continue on and on and on. Um, unfortunately, we've all been part of churches where that's happened. Right? Someone's praying and praying and praying. And you're like, it's never going to end. Right? Because they're babbling. So there's a sense where sometimes it's okay to think in your head, why are we praying so long, right? It's not an ungodly thought. So we want to be people that remind ourselves of that, right? Pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We want to be people who don't babble or say empty words to impress each other. Because I think often we think of impressing, we think of the Pharisees, we think of a religious leader, right? We think of a YouTube pastor. Or we think of somebody we were really impressed with, an author. Um, but we tend to fall in that ourselves, right? We can fall into smaller places of getting glory from men that aren't maybe as large as a bigger stage, but they're still there. And that's the one thing I love about God. God isn't needing me to be intelligent. God isn't needing me to be eloquent, which I am far from it. Right? In 1 Kings, we have the prophets of Baal. What are they doing all day? Praying and praying and praying, right? They're babbling before this God. And what's Elijah do? He mocks them, right? Says, maybe your God's sleeping. Maybe he's in the bathroom. I don't know. Where is your God? He's not here. But then, if you want to go on your own and look at that, 1 Kings, his prayer is short and simple, right? It points to a heart that is humble and truthfully seeking after God. It does not point to a man of eloquence who's able to call down fire by impressive words, right? The Spirit moves through Elijah's simple prayer because of his humble heart. And so as we go through the beginning of this, as we'll continue on in later sermon series, that's the key thing to be thinking through as we pray. Do you have a humble heart coming to prayer? Are you looking to stand in communication before the God of creation and actually praise and speak? And so as we get to this first part, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I want to notice what we do to the text. So I'm going to read it again. But, but notice what I do to the text here. Because we do this subconsciously, even though we don't maybe say it. My Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give me this day my daily bread and forgive my debts as, we, as I forgive those who have sinned against me and lead me not into temptation but deliver me from evil 
What's the big difference there? Now we all do it subconsciously, right? When we're saying our Father in heaven, right? We're changing in our minds the R to me. But Jesus doesn't do that, right? Jesus could have gone with a model that is focused on the singular, the individual. But what does Jesus do? Our Father, us, our debts, we. He focuses on the group because Christianity, again, is not a singular religion. And in America, we love our singular religion. We like to have our prayer routine. We like to have our prayer journal. We like to do things the way we do them. We want to do it a certain way. But God is calling us to remind ourselves immediately from the beginning. Our Father. We are the collective bride of Christ. We are not eyes when we pray this prayer. It's a reminder that we are much bigger than ourselves. That the glory of heaven will be that every tribe, every tongue, every nation will stand together as one body and praise God for all eternity. It's one of the reasons we find a marriage that goes 60, 70 years so profoundly beautiful. Because that is a hard road to go down. And to see two people be one is a miniature form of what we see in heaven. So when we pray our Father, we have to first step back and say, am I actually praying our Father? Or am I praying my Father? Who am I focusing on when I pray to God? Am I focusing on myself and my needs? Or am I thinking about our needs and our Father who has saved us? Partly what it does too in the first section, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, is it points to our condition as collective sinners. There's a paper that put forth a question, and G.K. Chesterton, a famous author, would answer it. And the question is, what is the problem in the world? The question was sent to many public intellectuals in Victoria, England, many who sent back long essays delineating the complexities of everything wrong with the world. Repeatedly, Chesterton responded with a simple handwritten note that said, I am sincerely yours, Chesterton. Sometimes we pray, we don't start with that place. What's the problem in your life? It's you. It's me. It's the individual who's in need of God's forgiveness. And so when we read our Father in heaven, right, it's a reminder that we are saved by Father in heaven, that we are saved through the blood of his Son, Christ Jesus. It's an immediate reminder of the gospel. Our Father in heaven who has saved us from our broken state. Now notice, it goes from our to Father. How many names does God give us to call him? Are there more impressive names? If you're, like, you're going to pray to God, is there a more impressive name? I know it may not be popular, but just for example, if President Biden walked and I said, hey, Joe, right? It's not, that's a, that's a, it's not impressive, right? It's Mr. President, right? Even in our smaller forms of government, we understand that the name you use matters. If I'm calling him Joe, you're going to expect me to know him on some personal level, right? Or you're like, yeah, well, he's really insulting our president. There's only two options, right? But think about what name Jesus gives us to call God, Elohim, the creator of everything, the father head of the triune God, what name does he give us to call him? 
God, right, is father to us. Man, that's profound, right? Jesus is telling us a profound truth about our relationship to Christ in prayer or through Christ in prayer to our Father in heaven. He is our Father. He is not merely a God who is far off. He is not Elohim who has set the stars in motion and then wiped his hands clean and said, you're on your own. He has come down through his Son and is the Father to his adopted children. The Baptist Faith and Message puts it this way. God as Father reigns with providential care over his universe, his creatures, and the flow of the streams of human history according to the purposes of his grace. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, all-wise. God is Father in truth to those who become children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. He is fatherly in his attitude towards all men. There's this wonderful truth that God is fatherly towards all men, but he's only the father of those who have faith in him. Those who have been regenerated, born again, and in his family. And so again, we are immediately called back to the presence of the gospel. Our father, who has saved us, who has once taken the enemies of his son and made them into co-heirs with his son. He loves us. He wants to be engaged in our lives. He hears our petitions as a father listens to a son or a daughter. It is not just simply something of a God-off and demanding tribute through prayer. It is an intimate relationship between a father and his child. Then we have the phrase, in heaven. Now in heaven, right, we think of where God reigns, but it's a little bit more than just simply where he reigns. It's a notion of his ruling power. He's not far off. He is ruling from heaven. He is engaged actively in our world. He is not simply just watching everything go by and hoping that things go his way. He is engaged in human history. He is ruling over us. The wicked shall get what they deserve. The righteousness, they shall receive a reward in heaven with him. So our Father in heaven, he is a person who rules rightly all over creation. If you want to turn with me, turn with me to Ecclesiastes. Five, two. We're going to read those words. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Right? Our Father in heaven is a reminder of who it is you approach. He is our Father who has called us wonderfully into communion with Him. But He still rules from heaven. He is still all-powerful, omnipotent. Amazing, the creator who, by the works of his hands, or demonstrates his power. And so we want to make sure that our words are few. It's one of the, side note, one of the reasons we should pray more scripture. If you're someone who's struggling to pray, a great thing to do is pray scripture. Use God's words, let your words be few, since so often they are quite foolish uh, in their outcomes. So let your words be few to the Father who is in heaven. 
hallowed be your name. Question, is this a statement of praise or is it an appeal? Hallowed be thy name. Is it a statement of praise or is it an appeal? A little of both, right? But I'm going to argue that it's actually an appeal to God that his name would become holy. That it would be made holy, right? So the word hollow, we don't use that much except for in the Lord's Prayer. It's to make holy or it's to consider holy. So in this section we have here is an appeal to God our Father to act in such a way to make his name even more holier. Psalms 25:11 says, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Isaiah 43, 6-7 says, Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory. Isaiah 48, 9-11, For my name's sake I defend, defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver, for I have tried you in the furnace of affliction, for my own sake, for my own sake I do it. How should my name be profaned? My glory I do not give to another. And then Ezekiel 24, or 2014, excuse me. I acted in the, the sake of my name, and it should be not profaned in the sight of the nations, in whose sight I had brought them out. Many more verses we can look at. But the key thing we pick up is what? God does things for his name's sake. And so often when we say, hallowed be thy name, we think we're saying, hey, you're holy, God, praise you. That's true, and we don't want to downplay that. But also it's a reminder that what we are doing is to bring glory to the name of God. God is calling us to act and move in such ways that his name would become more glory among the nations that it would be more apparent to those we live with, that it would be glorious to all who interact with us. Hollow be your name in this church. I'm going to summarize what we've talked about today. And I'm going to quote um, G.I. Packer to end. So please listen along as we do that. The first lines of Jesus' prayer focus our attention on God and not ourselves. Jesus teaches that God is our eminent Father. He is transcendent, the one in heaven. He is the one who reveals and names himself. And our chief concern in prayer is not our own comfort, but God's glory. If we do not truly know the God to whom we speak, our prayers remain impotent, facile, and devoid of life. Only by coming to know the God that Jesus describes in the first lines of the Lord's Prayer will we ever move to come before the throne of grace. Men who know their God are before anything else men who pray. And the first point where they zeal and energy for God's glory come to expression is their prayers. If there is little energy for such prayer and little consequence for practicing of it, it is a sure sign that yet we scarcely know our God.